Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. This is the word of the Lord. Now you should have recognized in the reading a list of the Ten Commandments. What we would call the second table of the law. Do not commit adultery, the sixth commandment. Do not murder, the fifth. Do not steal, the seventh. Do not bear false witness, the eighth. Do not defraud, which is actually referring to the ninth and the tenth commandments, which we will go through tonight in a little bit of a greater detail, and we'll see the defrauding aspect of covetousness. And then honor your father and your mother, which is the fourth commandment, or the first commandment under the second table of the law. So you should recognize the Ten Commandments there. This is a rich young man who comes to Jesus. And I'd like to ask this first question, what do you learn about the rich man's faith by the question that he asks Jesus? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do you learn about his faith on the basis of his question. Larry? It was in himself. It was in himself. How do you know that? Because what should I do? What, what should I do that I may inherit eternal life? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he trusts in himself. Do you remember the first commandment? You shall have no other gods. Remember, I asked the question, what positive thing is God saying in that first commandment? You shall have no other gods. Sometimes we only hear the commandments in the negative. But what positive thing is he saying? The God who created us, the God who saves us. What is he saying? Now, Tom, you, have, you should remember this. Trust me. Very good. We pounded that home enough this afternoon. Okay, trust me. 
I'm certain that this young man would say, I trust God. But we learn from his question that his faith for salvation is in himself. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice Jesus' response. First, tell me what Jesus, how Jesus answers him. The very first thing he says. What does he say? Why do you call me good? But then Jesus does not allow him to answer the question, why do you call me good? But goes on to say, no one is good but one that is God. So the second question on your sheet is, what is Jesus saying about all people in this reply to the young man? What is he saying to all people? So no one can be good? Or how about no one is good? All right? So if there is only one who is good, why do you call me good? Do you realize what you are saying? There is only one who is good. God. Which means then everybody else is, just let's use the language here, bad or no good. Okay? If there's only one who is good and that is God, then all other people are no good, or they're sinners. So then Jesus goes on with him to the Ten Commandments. We already went through those. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Why? Why does Jesus go through the commandments with him to show him his sin because what does he not believe about himself that he's a sinner or if he has sinned or has some infractions he can take care of it himself because he asks what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now it's interesting, an inheritance, he calls it inheritance, and in, to inherit eternal life. Normally, is an inheritance something that a person earns? Savannah? No. An inheritance is fundamentally a gift, and when you pass away here, Larry, your children will inherit your millions, right? Yes. Because they're born into the family. That status, it's a gift status that they have. So it's interesting, though, he confounds the two. Does What must I do to inherit eternal life? Inheritance is almost in every case a gift. But for him, it is something that is earned. So he directs, Jesus directs him to the law to show him his sin. And what does the young man believe about himself and God's law? What does he say? All, the, all these things I have kept. Now, I don't know about you, but my reaction to that is, are you kidding me? Your whole life, you've always kept the law? You never stuck your tongue out at your mom? Annie? You never disobeyed your father, Daniel? 
You never said your room was clean, Nathaniel, when it really wasn't clean? Sometimes in Didache, we look at the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says to those Pharisees who trusted in their works, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, whoever looks at a woman and lusts after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So according to that standard of the law, is there anyone who is without sin? No. So the young man believes he has kept God's law. All these I've kept from my youth. And my reaction is, are you kidding me? But is that Jesus' reaction? You know, my reaction would be, are you kidding me? I want to shove the law in his face and show him how wrong he is. But look at Jesus' reply. He says, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now I want to take you back to the beginning of what Jesus said to him. Before he even says anything, what does Jesus have in his heart for this self-righteous man who trusts in himself and his own works and doesn't believe he's a sinner? Love. He has love for him. He has compassion for him. And notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say 753,000 things you lack. Which in terms of keeping the law, every jot and tittle, thought, word, and deed, ten commandments, multiply it a lifetime over. That's in terms of numbering sins, that would be scratching the surface. Jesus doesn't say 100 things you lack, 50 things you lack, one thing. One thing you lack. One thing. My question for you is, and I'll ask it this way first, what is the one thing he lacks? Larry says faith. Well, see, you can't answer the question when you've been in the class 16 times. Because I want... I want to stretch, and you didn't hear her, so that's good. What is the one thing that he lacked? Trust. Trust? So you said faith, trust in God. Now, it's interesting. Tom added the object of faith, God. Trust in God. And Larry meant that, but you just said faith. Faith has to have an object, right? The object of this man's faith is himself. What if I ask you the question this way? Who does this man lack? Then what would you say, Nicola? Jesus. See, a lot of people reading this, and many of you have been around a long time, so you're not, you're not drawn into this. 
Notice what Jesus says. One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. A lot of people would hear that and see the one thing that he lacked is that he hadn't done enough philanthropic acts. You got to do more philanthropic acts. You got to sell everything you have and give to the poor. That's what you lack. That's not it. Rather, what is he saying to the man when he says, sell it all, get rid of everything? That's the money he had earned. That's the position that he had garnered for himself. So what is Jesus doing when he says, let go of everything, sell it all? What is he calling him to? Let me say it this way. Savannah? To be dependent upon, what do we call that? Elias, do we know? He is calling him to faith. And what's that part of faith where you turn? You t- repentance. You turn away from what you trust in to trust in God. See, repentance is not fundamentally stopping doing what you're doing, although we certainly want to, if you're stealing, go and steal no more. That's an aspect of repentance. But at the heart of repentance is that you turn away from what you trusted in, in this case himself and his own works, to Christ. So Jesus is calling him to repentance and faith in him. Let go of everything. Sell it all and follow me. What part of the law are we dealing with there then? If it's trust in Jesus, Tom. First commandment and the first table of the law, our relationship with God. But the one thing he lacks is Christ. Because Christ is the, let's go back to what Jesus said. Why do you call me good There's only several thousand people in the world who are good. Is that what he says? You know, Mother Teresa, uh, St. Sebastian, Pope John Paul II. That's not what he says. No one is good but one. That is God. And the man was looking at him. Because Jesus is God in the flesh the only one who is truly righteous. Now let's go on to my questions here before you. When Jesus says at the end, follow me, see there's the object of faith, Christ. In the New Testament, the phrase follow me, follow Jesus. Some people sing a hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. Where was Jesus going? To the cross, Verla. To the cross. To his suffering and death. Let go of everything and follow me. In the New Testament, follow me always leads to the cross. Which was for Jesus his what? Yes. What happened to him on the cross? He died. It was for him his death. And so is it also for us. If I were to ask you this, what had to die in this man? His self. All reliance upon his self, that that false idolatrous faith that worshipped his own works, that had to die in him. Come follow me. The, The call to faith, repentance and faith, Elias, repentance and faith means that we die to self in contrition and repentance. 
and we cling to Christ, whose death is our salvation. Now, why is it hard for someone who has riches to enter the kingdom of heaven? It says, he heard this from Jesus. He was sad, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And then Jesus looked around and said to him, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Wesley? Often they make a God out of their riches. Now, Wesley, is it only rich people that make a God out of riches? No. Can poor people make a God out of riches? How? By wanting it. Which leads us into our ninth and tenth commandments in a few minutes, coveting, desiring that which you do not have. And so he trusted in his works. He trusted in the wealth that he accumulated for himself. And this had become his God. However, his question early on, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It indicates something else about him. Though he came with a faith in his own works according to the law, when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It indicates something else about him. What is it? Kent. He doesn't think he has it yet or he's uncertain. And this is where the trust in self, the trust in the law leads us to uncertainty also. Is he looking for reassurance from Jesus? Yeah, he kneels before him, good teacher. He addresses his, him in terms of endearment and reverence and respect. He doesn't address him like the Pharisees who are trying to trap Jesus. He really wants to know. He really wants assurance. And I want you to understand the pastoral care that Jesus engages in with this man. The reason Jesus doesn't argue with him, what is it? You know, when he doesn't, you haven't kept the commandments, what's the matter with you? <laughs> Slap him in the face. Why, does, why doesn't Jesus do that? Because he loves him. And he loves him as a pastor. What does he desire for him, Beth? He wants him to come to repentance and faith. He wants him to trust in Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one, use the language from the text, who is Good. So to inherit eternal life, one must have Christ. Bless you. We asked this question in the catechism at the very end part. Why did Christ die for you and shed his blood for you? And the answer given in the catechism in the Christian questions is his great love for his Father and for us and all people. That's why he did it. Love for God and love for the neighbor. Notice, that's how, in our previous discussions, we've been talking about the law. The first table of the law, trust God, pray to him, hear him. You shall have no other gods. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day. It is all about love for God with all one's heart and with all one's soul and with all one's strength. Who does that? 24-7. All the time, Jesus. 
And because he loved his father, this is a key point also, the second table of the law, the fourth, fifth, sixth, all the way through the tenth commandment, describes our relationship to the neighbor, and that's summarized, love your neighbor as yourself. Only when one's love for God is pure can we love our neighbor rightly. If I were to ask you, what does it mean to love yourself? As a Christian, isn't that a strange expression? You know, love your neighbor as yourself. If you disconnect that word of God from love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, what will love your neighbor as yourself invariably turn into? Yeah, so what kind of a love is that? It's, it's introverted. It's selfish. It's self-centered. Okay? We have that in the world today where the acceptance of whatever you want to be is love. No, it isn't. To love God with all one's heart, soul, mind, and strength means that a dad is going to tell a daughter what she needs to hear even though she doesn't want to hear that. That's true love. But where does that kind of love come from? Love for God first with all one's heart, soul, mind, and strength. So there's a relationship between the first table of the law and the second table of the law. Love for God with all one's heart, soul, mind, and strength is absolutely essential in the second table of the law, loving the neighbor as yourself, or as I like to say, in place of oneself. But who does that? There is only 363,000 people who are good. No, there is only one who is good. And that is God. How does Jesus love his Father with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength? That he trusts, that he fears and loves and trusts in his Father above all things. How does he do that? How does he do that? Lisa? He prays, absolutely. What did his Father ask of him? To forsake everything and die upon the cross. Isn't that interesting? Sell everything you have and follow me. You see how the life of the Christian is patterned after the life of Christ. Jesus loves his Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength to the point of denying himself and his own comforts and going to the cross out of love for the Father and in so doing, how does he love his neighbor? How does he love you? By dying on the cross. So see, the death of Christ is both Jesus' love with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength for the Father and his love for you and me and even his enemies in place of himself. Does he love for his own benefit? No. Bless you. He doesn't love for his own benefit. He loves for our benefit. This man wanted to do the works that he did for whose benefit? For whose benefit? For himself. You see, when we speak against works righteousness, trusting in your own works for salvation, I remember when I was growing up, it was often taught like this. Your works can't save you because you can never do enough works. Well, it's true, except it's not, it misses the point. 
Because then in that scheme, the doing of good deeds is what's going to accrue to me. When the love described in the catechism is a love that is done for the benefit of another, never for one's own benefit. That's why Jesus addresses the man this way. He wanted to save him from the self-centered, introverted self-righteousness. All right. The Ten Commandments, under number four here, the Ten Commandments preach repentance. And we saw it in the first chapter of Mark's Gospel when he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It shows us our sin and how much we need a Savior. And if you don't remember anything else for today, remember that the object of our faith as Christians is Jesus. Follow me. The one who loved his Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength for you. The one who loved you in place of himself and went to the cross for you. And this is how he fulfilled the law for you, not for his own benefit, but for you. So if you don't remember anything else, remember this. As Christians, we believe in Jesus. We trust in Jesus. Why? Because he died for my sins, and he died for your sins, and he died for the sins of the whole world. And this is the righteousness of God that God the Father offered up his Son and Jesus willingly died under the judgment of the law in love for his Father and in love for us. So the Ten Commandments are always exposing lovelessness in us, so they're always exposing sin. They're always exposing a lack of trust, so they're always exposing sin. The law also teaches us what it is to love God and the neighbor, and the quintessential expression of that is in Jesus. So in his death, we see both the, ful the fulfillment of both tables of the law. All right, if you flip over to the next side, we do need to spend about 10 minutes on the ninth and 10th commandments and then the close of the commandments. I'll ask you the question and then you can reply. What is the ninth commandment? So under the ninth commandment, God desires to protect the affections of the heart. There are two commandments that deal with covetousness, the ninth and the tenth, because of the pervasiveness of covetousness. So if I were to ask you, what does the word covet mean, what would you say? Can you define it? Mark? Want? Keep going. That's good. Desire yes. for what? Your own sin. For your own, well, yeah. it's a self-centered sinful desire. Yeah. To, to desire that which God has not given. Okay? To insist upon it. The, the ninth and the tenth commandments link us right back to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. Trust me. Now, I got to have this. If I don't have this, I will not be happy. I got to have this. If I don't have this, I will not be content. I got to have this. That's an expression of covetousness. In the parentheses, I wrote for you, God desires to protect the affections of our heart. 
the affections of our heart, the things that we love. There is only one love above all other loves that will not turn us into self-centered beings. And that's the love for, it's the love for Christ. That's the only love that will not turn us into self-centered beings. If we love things, if we love money, if we love our position, if we love our standing in the world, if we love our education above all else, okay, it turns us into egomaniacs. Now, the old Adam, the sinful flesh in us, which we've talked about some in the past, that's the nature. The old Adam, the sinful flesh, doesn't love God, doesn't fear him, doesn't trust in him, and has no natural ability for that. This man went away sad, even though he had sincerity. Sincerity didn't count. He still went away sad. So, God by these commandments, desires to protect the affections of our hearts so that we have affection for him first and then the things that he has given us. Okay? So the home that he has given you, you can have an affection for that as long as it is received as a gift from God on his terms. When it becomes the end in itself, then God is displaced. The thing about affections always involves what? If you have an affection for something, yeah, it's, it's, it's a love, affection is a love word. What is, affection always involves an object, an object true enough, Yes, Beth? The heart. You know, it's always expressed in terms of emotion. Affection is always expressed in terms of emotion. The affections of the heart. Okay? How many, how many people have said I love you, and didn't mean by saying that, I am willing to die for you so that you will live, but rather meant by that, I just love you. They wanted to possess you. They wanted to control you. Okay. That type of love is expressed a lot. So, under you shall not covet. Yeah, we're connected to the first commandment. Trust only what God and only receive what he has given. Be content with that. He wants to protect the affections of our heart because our emotions can lead us and control us and are extremely powerful. In other words, Kent, what I want. I want, and what I want, I want it. When I want it. It's, it's amazing how this feeling of ardent devotion is often expressed in terms of either a seeming ardent devotion or an anger or a bitterness. Okay? So if I don't get what I want, then I'm angry about it. Okay? If I don't get the respect that I want, I'm angry about it. See? So we can covet a lot of things. 
So that's what I mean by covetousness is always a sin of the heart, and God wants to protect the affections of our heart, that they're rightly ordered in terms of our faith in Christ and our love for him and the gift of forgiveness and salvation that we have in Jesus. All right, I should go on to the explanation. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house or get it in a way which only appears right, but help and be of service to him in keeping it. So, covetousness is the sin in the heart, but covetousness is that which leads to all other sins, the outward sins of murder, theft, false witness, and so forth. In other words, say it the other way, if we coveted nothing, we would never hurt or harm our neighbor in his body. We would never commit adultery. We would never steal. We would never say a bad word or gossip or defame. Or as Beth just said, we would never sin. Because covetousness and faithlessness or unbelief, mistrust, go together. So out of the covetous desires, there comes this scheming. Now, there's another distinction you can sort of make between the ninth and the tenth commandments in this way. The ninth commandment especially stresses inanimate objects. Okay, so I might love this pew, but the pew cannot return affection to me. But another person can. Okay? And another person can return affections, and the affections of another person also can be manipulated and controlled. Here, under the ninth commandment, the scheming is all within the heart of the individual that works itself out in the mind to find ways to obtain what it is that I want. So the negative is so that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house or get it in a way which only appears right. Now, I miss the old language because it is used in jurisprudence. To get it in a way which only appears right used to be rendered to get it by a show of right. And a show of right is a technical phrase where you use the law to get what you want, even though it is naughty. So you grab the McDonald's coffee, and you're messing around with the radio, and you spill it on your lap, and you get second-degree burns, and then you sue McDonald's for $1,500,000 because they didn't have a warning that the coffee was hot. And you get the money awarded to you. It's legal, but there's an example of a show of right, okay, or in a way that only appears right. Now, the positive, but help and be of service to him, our neighbor, in keeping his inheritance or house. Let's uh, move on then to the Tenth Commandment. What is the Tenth Commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, 
his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So the idea of, in the, under this 10th commandment, a bit of a distinction from the 9th, is relationships. Some of you have relationships with your dogs or cats that are extremely important. So uh, when you read about the ox or donkey, uh, maybe you can think of your dogs or cats there. But oxen and donkeys were extremely important in terms of the sustaining of life and, and welfare. But the focus on coveting your neighbor's wife or spouse, manservant or maidservant, is especially highlighting relationships. So the Tenth Commandment, like the Ninth, God also desires to protect the affections of our hearts. But he, under the Tenth, the desire to guard and protect the relationships he has given. Okay? So there are many relationships that we could have. A man with a woman is a good relationship if the man is the husband and the woman is the wife. But that same kind of relationship that the husband and the wife enjoy is not for the man to have with someone else's wife or the woman with someone else's husband. Or now, in this day and age, a man with another man or a woman with another woman. So what God wishes to protect, among other things, under the Tenth Commandment, is the ordering of his relationships that he has given. So I think about, in my own life, I am a husband, so I have a relationship with my wife, and it's a relationship of love. I have four sons and I am their father, that's a relationship of love. But it's of a different kind, isn't it? And then I have friends, and I have a relationship with them. I'm a pastor, I have a relationship with you. But there's a proper ordering in those relationships given by God. So what the Tenth Commandment speaks against is to the covetousness that desires the relationship that not only God has not given, but those relationships which in God's order and design would be sinful. Under the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not tice or force away our neighbor's wife, workers, or animals, or turn them against him, but urge them to stay and do their duty. Notice how the scheming under the ninth commandment finds its expression under the tenth in enticement or forcing away someone's wife or workers, turning them against him. There's the negative, the positive, urging them to stay and do their duty. What is that? but to stay and maintain the offices that you have been given. Well, more could be said about the ninth and the 10th commandment, but we do have to conclude with the close of the commandments. What does God say about all these commandments? He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers, 
to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. What does this mean? God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Therefore, we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them. But he promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments. Therefore, we should also love and trust in him and gladly do what he commands. Now, I want to draw your attention to two things under the quotation from Exodus, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, and then two things from from the explanation. First, is jealousy normally a sin? Yes. In fact, jealousy is associated with envy and can also fall under the idea of covetousness. Is God sinning when he is jealous? No. What does it mean? The jealousy of God, I like to say, is like that of a parent who is jealous for their children's health, safety, spiritual welfare, and whose anger would burn hot if anyone tried to destroy them or if they ignored the counsel of the parent and were destined to destroy themselves. Have you ever gotten angry with your children, Larry? Uh, yes. Yes. Is that because you hated them? Uh, no. no. So the kind of anger that a parent has for the safety and well-being, Annie, don't do that. Don't you ever do that again captures this sense of the jealousy of God. He alone is creator. He alone is savior. Apart from him, there is no life and salvation. So he is jealous, and you can also use the word zealous for us who belong to him, not willing that we perish. So much so that he gave us his only begotten son. Second thing I want to say about the top part is Sins of parents impact their children and the family. There's no such thing as sin that has no negative impact on anyone else. And it is especially so when it comes to parents toward their children. It's why parents under the fourth commandment need to pray for faithfulness. And when they go too far with their children to be urged on to confession with their children, Annie, I'm sorry I spoke harshly to you. Please forgive me for Jesus' sake. Because the sins that we commit have an impact on our marriages and on our families. And the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children. Thieves tend to raise thieves. Liars tend to raise liars. Fornicators tend to raise fornicators. Self-righteous gossips and slanderers tend to raise self-righteous gossips and slanderers. You've heard the expression, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Well, In a certain sense, that's a colloquial way of expressing some of this. 
The sins of the fathers are visited upon the children. And sins carry with them their own punishment in this life. And that's part of what this is saying as well. So when we act contrary to God's design, there, is, there are repercussions. Those who are changing their sex, which you can't do, but they're having surgeries and hormone therapy, are infinitely more likely to commit suicide and succeed at it. Their mental health suffers. That's part of the sins of the fathers are that visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation. The bottom part, two things. God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Is that comforting to you? God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Is that comforting to you? It's not comforting to me. This is a statement of the law. The law is always accusing and it is always threatening punishment. The only escape from that punishment is where? In Christ, the only one who is truly good. Who suffered and died not for his own benefit, but of, out of love for his father and out of love for us. Second thing I want to say is this is, all, this is all law here. So when it says we should fear his wrath and not do anything against him. Growing up, I feared the wooden spoon because my mother used it on my older siblings. And I wasn't an idiot. I didn't get it used on me very much because I done feared my mama. I knew she meant what she said and she said what she meant. So it spared my hiney. So there are cause and effect relationships. The threat of punishment or wrath does help to maintain order in society. We call that the first function of the law. It's a civil function to maintain order. When there is no longer any civil function in the law in home or in the cities of our country, you see what happens. The sins are visited upon the whole culture and there's a deterioration. He promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments. That's true. If you could keep the commandments, you'd have great blessing. What's the problem? You don't keep them. Okay. Now, it's true on the horizontal plane that things tend to go better with you, Annie, if you did what mom and dad said in home or, or when you didn't. Yeah. So it tended to go better when you simply did as you were told. So there is a cause and effect relationship, but this is still a statement of the law. This is not a statement of the gospel. He promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments. That is not the gospel. Because the law is always showing us what we are to do and what we're not to do. And yeah, there are benefits and there are repercussions. But for us as Christians, there is only one who is good. And that is God our Lord Jesus Christ, who upon the altar of the cross fulfilled the law because there in his suffering and death he loved his Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and he loved us in place of himself, counting us of more value than he was. And he let go of everything and he went to the cross. And when he calls us to repentance and faith, it is his grace and mercy throughout a lifetime of struggle that teaches us
what this young man needed to learn and which we need to learn to let go of ourselves and trust only in him who gave himself for us. Let us prepare for the sacrament, the singing of the first half of hymn 555. Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. 
Our help is in the name of the Lord. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of our beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you. And in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. And in our prayers this evening, in addition to all of the sick, we especially remember Jennifer Scheller, who is having a difficult recovery after surgery, and Pastor Luke Berenger, Beth Berenger's brother, diagnosed with abdominal cancer. Let us pray. O oh Lord, you are the great physician of body and soul. You chasten and you heal. On the basis of your grace and mercy to us in the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, we cry out to you on behalf of all your servants, stricken with various illnesses and recovering from surgery. Debbie, Wolf, Shirley, Tom, Amy, Connor, Travis, Kathy, Michael, John, Kathleen, Dennis, Kathy, Gabby, and especially Jennifer and Pastor Luke Berenger. Bring healing and a renewal of health and strength according to your will. Under the cross of physical infirmity, sustain them with your grace and grant them your peace. Lord, in your mercy. Lord Jesus, you invite all who are burdened with sin to come to you for rest. We now come at your invitation to the heavenly feast which you have provided for your children on earth. Preserve us from impenitence and unbelief. Cleanse us from our unrighteousness and clothe us with the righteousness purchased with your blood. Strengthen our faith, increase our love and hope, and assure us a place at your heavenly table where we will eat eternal manna and drink of the river of your pleasure forever and ever. Hear us, Lord Jesus, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. 
It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord, Holy Father, almighty and everlasting God, for the countless blessings you so freely bestow on us and all creation. Above all, we give thanks for your boundless love, shown to us when you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into our flesh and laid on him our sin, giving him into death that we might not die eternally. Because he is now risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity, all who believe in him will overcome sin and death and will rise again to new life. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabbath. Heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in Christ. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of all creation. For you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world. Have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world. Have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world. Grant us thy peace. Amen.